Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week, we come to you from Cleveland. And we're calling you from the Ritz-Carlton. The original Ritz-Carlton actually opened here back in 1990. They just reopened it after a massive renovation and refurbishment uh, in October. So I'm dealing with a brand new hotel, but it feels like home because in the interest of full disclosure, for many, many years, I was coming to Cleveland all the time because I was a regular on a show called The Morning Exchange at WEWS, the ABC affiliate, with Fred and Connie. And I'd always come to this hotel because I have an admission to make. I never shop at home. I always shop on the road. So I'd always go to Tower City right here and go to the shopping center. I got everybody to to agree to ship it back. In those days, they didn't, but they did it for me. And then I'd go out at night to the flats to a place called Shooters. It's still there. And then I, I, now I remember the name of this restaurant on the river, Sammy's. And Sammy's on the river, the Cuyahoga, which used to be having a great view of the river on fire. Guess what? The river's not on fire anymore. You know, speaking about Cleveland, uh, there's so much history. Uh, There's so much history that's, that's around this city. And joining me now is somebody who knows a little bit about that. He's just written Cleveland A to Z. Uh, he's our historian, John Grabowski. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Good, uh, good. You know, most people, and I know because you're a local, so I, I can say this to you, uh, 
most people, you know, Cleveland is sort of like a caricature. Cleveland is sort of a joke. They don't realize how much history is here, how much culture is still here, and it goes way beyond the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, indeed. It's, uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the city and you get past those cliches that, that come, you know, come out in the 60s and 70s, which is the nature of the city, all, all you need to do is, you know, take the health line down Euclid Avenue and end up in University Circle, and, and there you find, you know, you're going past two of the major hospitals in the nation, uh, Cleveland Clinic, Cleveland University, Clinic, University yeah. Hospitals, and then when you get to University Circle, you know, my invitation is come to the Western Reserve Historical Society's Cleveland History Center, indulge yourself in our new exhibit called Cleveland Starts Here, and find out what the city is. But, you know, across the streets, the Museum of Natural History, around the corners, the Cleveland Museum of Art, and if you're there on the right Thursday evening, you can pick up a concert at the Cleveland Orchestra. This, you know, this is part of uh, the cultural legacy that begins in the city in the late 19th century. And, you know, it's... And by the way, speaking of the late 19th century, look, even though this hotel has been completely restored and refurbished, I mean, it's been here since 1990, but if you look out the windows here, you're seeing some really great architecture out there that dates back to the turn of the last century. Yeah, there's, there's incredible architecture. You know, the Cleveland Mall, which is the green space, was internationally recognized when it was started in the early 1900s. And one of the things we're seeing in the city now is a lot of young people want to move and live downtown. And why? Well, it's convenient. But, but that's happening. You know what? That's happening throughout the Midwest. Yeah. You're seeing it in, in St. Paul. Mm. You're seeing it in Milwaukee. You're seeing you know converted bluff buildings and warehouses. It's great. Yeah, it's, it's great. And I think one of the reasons they choose that is because it's not cookie cutter. It has it has style. It has history. It's it's diverse in terms of what you see, and it's in walking distance. So the the, the built infrastructure of cities like Cleveland is is you know it's historic, but it's also contemporary. And when you look at the history here, and you're a local boy, right? Right. You're born and raised. Born and raised. Born and raised. So you've seen all the changes. You've also seen what's been preserved. There was a time in the '70s they wanted to knock everything down. Yeah. There's a, the, you know Cleveland did the same thing a lot of other cities did, and we urban renewal in the '50s and '60s tore a lot of things down, and then there was a move in the '70s, and and that's stopped. And I think the prime example is Playhouse Square, which is the uh, theater district on, on uh, Euclid Avenue. These were old vaudeville movie houses, grand palaces from the 1920s. They were empty. There was there was nobody in it, and and they were going to destroy them. And a grassroots effort started, which was then funded by the Cleveland Foundation and the community. And and Playhouse Square jumps now. Playhouse Square is probably the entertainment district outside of New York City. And this was uh, grassroots. So when you say it's the largest entertainment center outside of New York City, that means you have a lot of plays that start here and then move east? No, we have a lot of plays that come here from going east. And we, do, <laughs> and we also start plays here at the, at the Cleveland Playhouse, which is indigenous. It's our playhouse. You know, it's, one, it's one of the first repertory, city repertory theaters in the nation. And so that has now moved into the Playhouse Square area around Cleveland State. So Cleveland also is an incubator then? Yeah. We incubate a lot of stuff. We incubate history. We incubate products. We incubate culture. Uh, you know, Cleveland uh, Cuyahoga Arts and Culture, which is our local funder for for artists and and museums, is you know it just gets young people in who are artists and funds and funds them. So we do that, and you f you find gallery space all over the city. Are you doing gallery nights here? Yeah, yeah, you there, are. There are gallery nights here. If and you're you're looking at you know there's called the powerhouse. It's on the west side, which you know brings over some of the materials from the Cleveland Museum of Art. Uh, it it pops, and you not only see that, but you you see a musical scene here that goes beyond rock and roll. You know, there are a lot of places now that are opening up in the old Collinwood area, new bands coming there. You know, not that I frequent them, not at, not, at, not at my exalted age at this point, but a lot of the students I teach are energized by what happens in this city. Now, I go back to the days when the river was on fire, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yep. The Cuyahoga. You, you, you and me both. The famous Randy Newman song. I mean, it's still out there, right? Right. right. 
it's not, it's not on fire anymore. No, it's not on fire. You know, the interesting thing is the Cahaga burned about 14 times. And, and the that time, I didn't know. Yeah, the, the time that it really got noticed was 1969. That was, you know, at the point when the environmental movement was, was beginning to burgeon. And, and some historians will argue that, and I think successfully, that that really fit into moving toward the EPA, that, that this was an argument that things needed to be done. And, you know, you go to the Cuyahoga now, and, and there are rowing teams on the Cuyahoga. Uh, there are pleasure boaters on the Cuyahoga. There's a and none of them are carrying fire extinguishers. Uh, no, no, none of them are. <laughs> and, and there are fish coming back in the Cuyahoga. That's cool. It, yeah, it is. It is. It is. It's a turnaround that, that we're very proud of in this city. And, you know, this, it, it's a natural resource that we prize. You know, we were talking earlier about the green spaces. You know, the river, the Emerald Necklace, which is the Cleveland Metro Parks, which surrounds the city, uh, University Circle. We have so much green space in northeastern Ohio. It's and, unbelievable. And nobody knows it. Nobody knows it. But you know what happens? We're beginning to get new people coming in to work in the hospitals and tech and so forth. And one of the things that attracts them to the city are these amenities the amenities of having great parkland, the amenities of having a lake on your front, if you will, you know, a river that is now navigable and enjoyable, and, and also a very affordable city. It's, it's, it's a great place to live. Well, you know, it, it reminds me a lot of, of Milwaukee and of Madison in, in terms of being a livable city yeah. and I a manageable city. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, that I looked at years ago was the distance between the airport and the city is not that great. No. It's, and now you have rail. Yeah. I mean, and you can just get right in. Yeah. You know, you know, the history of that, our light rail connection between the airport and the city was one of the first in the nation, if not the first in the nation, yeah. when it opened up. And, and so that brings you right to the center of the city, to Public Square. You know, in Public Square, 10-acre space that was just renovated. I mean, that's a symbol of who, who we are. That's our cultural route. That's our New England town square. This was a New England community when it was established in the late 1700s. And, and now this region has about 110 different ethnicities in it. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. It's, we're looking at northeastern Ohio, not just the city. And you're a hub. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that's, that's a little worrisome is that your airlift here is not as good as it used to be. No. Yeah, we've lost you, one major not, carrier. United yeah. Airlines yeah. essentially yeah. dropped down a lot. Right. Right. right? Yeah. And they, and they haven't been replaced. Yeah. You know, Continental had a hub here. They merged with United and then United. Well, back. when Continental was here, that was their big hub right. other than Newark. Right. And Houston. And then when they merged with United, everybody says, we're not going to touch Cleveland. We're not going to. And they, then they did. Yeah, they did. And there's a lot of push now to get, to get new airlines coming in. We'll see where that, that goes. There was just a, one of these, you know, your favorite. What, what would be your favorite new destination from Cleveland Hopkins Airport? That was in uh, Cleveland.com the other day. And I haven't read the results to see where people want direct flights to. You know, I'll take a direct flight back to Gatwick. We had them at one well, time. Well, you know what? You may be in luck because we're seeing the resurgence of ultra-long-haul, low-cost carriers coming across the Atlantic, yeah. offering fares that are ridiculously low on brand-new equipment going to underserved cities like Cleveland. Right. I mean, it's now cheaper to go from Hartford, Connecticut to London than it is to go from Hartford to Chicago. <laughs> um, seriously. Yeah. Same thing with, with, um, with Rhode Island and, 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 and in Providence. There's no, you have the capacity here at Cleveland to handle that. Yeah. Uh, you have the space, and I hope you get it, because what a great place for people to discover America, as opposed to the other international gateway cities, come to Cleveland. Come to Cle yeah, Cle Cleveland is the Midwest. Cleveland is diverse. Cleveland has a history that goes back to its Connecticut roots. We're talking about the Western Reserve, you know, and, and you have to realize hey, that— What is the Western Reserve? The Western Reserve is not a special bourbon, I, I'll tell you that. <laughs> it, it is the, that area of land that the state of Connecticut retained from its colonial claims. Connecticut? Connecticut. 
after the creation of the United States, you know, the, the colonies had these western claims, and Connecticut got to keep about 3.4 million acres. You know, one, it starts at the Pennsylvania border, goes west 120 miles. It's Connecticut's Western Reserve. And I, I never knew yeah. that. I've been talking with John Grabowski, the author of Cleveland A to Z, and he ought to know it because he's lived it. He's the local boy. You've seen all the changes here, John. Yeah. When I first came here, I'd go out to the flats. Um, it, was, it, was, it was like a really cool thing to do. Still is. Still is. Uh, to a place called Shooters, mm-hmm. right? And they're still around. They're still around. Right. Right. What? Tell me about the flats. Uh, the flats are the it's it's a it's a wide open flat area between the ridges that uh, the east side and the west side. It's the Cuyahoga River Valley just at the mouth of the river, and uh, it it is it's just a big divide. You know, there's this thing about east side and west side in Cleveland, and the flats is in between. And when you get down in the flats and you look up, you understand why there were once two separate cities here, Cleveland and Ohio City. They they finally merged in 1854. Really? But the flats, because the river was the industrial artery of Cleveland, the flats became the place where many of the railroads came in. and They were basically ignored. They were basically ignored. Well, they were, they were the, the, the industrially important armpit, if you will, of the city. <laughs> and, now uh, there's branding for you. There, there the you important go. armpit of the city. city. Uh, smoky, dirty, but with a lot of atmosphere. And, uh, you know, atmosphere in the good sense. And as industry began to diminish in the late 60s, people began to look at the flats and to see character down there, the, the crooked roads, the older buildings, and you began to get not only industrial bars. And arts community, too. Art community, too. You know, there's, there's an old industrial bar down there called the Flatiron Cafe. It's still down there. There's a great place on the other side of the flats called Hoopoles, which has been there forever. But then you began to see a lot of new clubs coming in. So there, there was a first renaissance in the flats, which I think you experienced. Right. Then that went south, and now the flats are back. There's a huge project called the East Bank Project on the flats. Uh, corporate headquarters are built there, new restaurants, parking areas, uh, and the flats, you know, are, are now, they, they attract a lot of people. It's, they do. They, they've gone from industry to, to, to entertainment, but there's still industry down there. Well, when you think of the, of the buildings and the architecture, which I think you and I both find fascinating, the building that we're in now, right, even though they've restored it and they've refurbished it, I mean, this neighborhood... You got some incredible buildings here. Yeah, we're you know we're we're, we're sitting on co- the corner of Public Square. We're in the Ritz Carlton Hotel. We're adjacent to the Cleveland Union Terminal, Tower City Center. This this is this incredible. You got some bank buildings bank here too. Bank buildings here too. And and this was the uh, Cleveland Union Terminal was built as a railroad terminal in the 1920s, but it also had these ancillary buildings. And it's one of the largest building projects undertaken in the United States at that time. And the Terminal Tower, which is still the iconic symbol of Cleveland, even though there's a taller building here, was, until the 1960s, bragging rights, the tallest building outside of New York City. So, you know, we, we, we were second, but, you know, <laughs> it was 708 feet, and it was the tallest building. And it's still here. It's still here. It, it, is, uh, it just epitomizes what Cleveland was in the 1920s, was the fifth largest city in the United States. The value of its industrial production was number five as well. And the Van Swearingen brothers, who created Shaker Heights, ended up building a railroad empire, and they managed it from the Terminal Tower. And there's no longer a railroad empire. There's no longer a railroad empire, but the railroads are still here. The Amtrak still comes in. Amtrak still comes in. Unfortunately, it has a small station on the lakefront, but it doesn't come through this terminal. But they st- you can still get here by train. You can get here by train, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm a big train fanatic. I wish we had a better train system in this country, but people, I think, would be very surprised to learn that ridership on Amtrak is at an all-time high. Yeah. 
it's it's uh, you know I'm I'm also a train fanatic. You know I I grew up one house away from a railroad track. Okay, <laughs> so it's kind of in the blood. And your mother kept on saying, "Don't go out there and play. Yeah, you'll yeah, kill yourself." yourself. Yeah, my yeah. my dad said that. My yeah. mother didn't hang the clothing outside when she knew the trains were coming past. But you know, there's. <laughs> It's you know you, you're right you know Cleveland that's what made Cleveland Cleveland had the the water connection as for industrial products and the rail connections were built up in the 1850s you know by the time of the Civil War this city was connected by rail to New York Chicago St Louis and that city down there called Pittsburgh city we love to hate yeah <laughs> but the point is you can still get here by train yes you can I just wish it would get better that's yeah, all so do I yeah when people come to visit you right because you are the the repository of great information but when people come to visit you what's the biggest thing that surprises them about Cleveland? I think the biggest thing that, that, that surprises them about this city is that it doesn't match the popular image that they have been taught about. And what's the popular image? The popular image is a down-and-out city where the river burned and the mayor's hair caught on fire. That's dying out. That's that's old. Stop right there. The uh, mayor's hair caught on fire? Right. There's a welding convention here in the 19th Of course, it happened at a welding convention. convention. He was cutting a ribbon and a spark touched his hair off. And, uh, and before the years of Instagram, that went global. Uh, <laughs> But you know those those things we've we've lived down, and what surprised? No, you me, haven't. Yes, yes, we have. <laughs> we just brought it up again. I just brought it up. Yeah. But I'm a historian. I know, I know. I, I bring you up all this excuse. stuff. Yeah, I you have, have an to excuse. do this. Yeah. So okay, but so it doesn't fit the stereotype. It anymore. doesn't fit the stereotype. You know, and and one of the things that people are really surprised of is is the, the food culture here. Toto, I've a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. it's just hard for me to contemplate that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is 22 years old. I just, I'm trying to get my arms around that, uh, and I can't. But the person who can is my next guest because he's the CEO and president of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Greg Harris, how are you, man? I'm fantastic, and uh, I, I don't want to age you even more, but <laughs> we've been inducting people now for 32 years. Uh, inductions went on for 10 years before the museum opened. Wow. And now the museum is uh, this beautiful space right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Since opening our doors, almost 12 million people have walked through the doors and been connected with the most powerful art form ever made, rock and, and roll. And it's an interactive museum. Uh, you know what? It's it's a history museum that tells the whole history of rock and roll with artifacts and others, but it's an art museum, and the art is the music. So to hear the music, to um, be a, in immersive environments, we have a Jonathan Demi film that's an immersive space. You got to feel it. You got to get that emotion, and you, and you get to live it then. Uh, yeah. Well, every day, all summer, we want it to be like a festival. You know, we do sixty days. We did sixty days of live music this year. We have an outdoor stage. We have beer gardens. Uh, we have food trucks, and it's all part of the experience of being immersed in rock and roll. And for us. You, you do that outside, you come inside, you see the great artifacts, you hear the stories, and you just remember these moments in your life that this was so important. Please tell me there's no karaoke. Uh, there is no karaoke. <laughs> there, is, there is none. But, uh, you know, there's uh, so the closest thing to karaoke is seeing a, a, a visitor reading the original, one of the original drafts of Born to Run from Bruce, and, sure. and they're singing through the choruses. And, uh, you know, they Peter, can't help themselves. Uh, they cannot help themselves. And I understand that is an artist that you've got a particular history with. I do. Uh, speaking to make me really feel old, 
back in the 70s when I was the West Coast correspondent for Newsweek, we all came to the same conclusion at Newsweek. Unbeknownst to us, our chief competitor, Time Magazine, came to the same conclusion at the exact same time that the new messiah was Bruce Springsteen. And, and there he was out in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and we, we, we decided, we thought we were the best thing to happen since sliced bread, we're going to put him on the cover. Time Magazine, on their own, decided they're going to put him on the cover, and we played this game of chicken in which nobody blinked. And, and, uh, and of course, he was out in, in, in L.A. playing at the Roxy, which is where I interviewed him there. Uh, the person who wrote the bulk of the story was Maureen Orth, who was our correspondent in New York doing music. Um, Maureen later on went to write for Vanity Fair and everybody else. Um, and I'll never forget, both magazines came out on that Monday morning with Bruce Springsteen on the cover. And 99.9% .9 of America had no idea who we were talking about. And, and yet he was catapulted immediately uh, to, to, the, to the consciousness, if you will, of America and then, if you remember the history, he didn't record for a year and a half because of all the lawsuits. That's right. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Now, the thing is, he, uh, let's face it, he fulfilled that promise um, that, uh, that everybody saw in him and has been such an impactful figure on not just rock and roll, but on the whole American landscape. Really uh, great that you were part of that historic moment. And now we're together, and Bruce is one of our great Hall of Fame inductees. Yes, and he gets involved, too. Very much so. He uh, he's inducted. Um, you know, when when U two was inducted, he he inducted him. He's inducted Roy Orbison, a number of others. He's very involved. Was Roy Orbison inducted posthumously, or yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. And you got new inductees. We do. We announced. Um, you know, just a few weeks ago, we announced our new inductees would be, um, you know, the Moody Blues are going in. They've been eligible since 89. They get on the ballot. They finally going, get in. They get now, in. Is this like the Baseball Hall of Fame? If you don't get in by a certain time, you never get in? Um, we don't have that, that ceiling like the Baseball Hall of Fame. Uh, but so, uh, so everybody still has a chance. <laughs> everybody still has a chance. And the other thing is... Pink Floyd's in, in right? Is Pink Floyd in? Oh, yeah. Pink yeah, Floyd is yeah. in. in. In rock and roll, the ballot resets every year. In baseball, there's some criteria where you're technically on the ballot, and it goes out to the sports writers. Right. We create a new ballot every single year. This year, there were 19 on the ballot. That ballot then goes out to a wider voting body, of which the biggest block are all the other inductees. And then the top five, top five get in. This year, it's uh, Moody Blues, Bon Jovi, Dire Straits, The Cars, Nina Simone, and Sister Rosetta Tharp. As many of you know, I was uh, the West Coast correspondent for music for many years, and, and music was my beat, among any other things including crime and air safety, but let's not go there. Um, and in those days, we're talking with Greg Harris, um, the CEO and president of the Hall of Fame. In those days, you know, I had my own table at the Roxy. I had my own table at the Whiskey. I had my own table at the Troubadour. I had my own, I, I had underground passes at the Forum, so I never had to stand in, it, it, you know, it was, and it was crazy, you know, because every night there was something going on. Uh, and all of those guys, with some exceptions, all of those guys that I went to see, right? Uh, Eric Clapton. Uh, did Jethro Tull get in? Uh, they, they've not been uh, nominated yet, no. <laughs> okay, that's an exception then. <laughs> but I mean, going in all the time to see those guys, and now they're, most of them are right there, right here in Cleveland. Yeah, they, they're just massive. And you know, it sounds like you, you are living the life where every day is a work day and every day is a weekend. Yeah. And uh, you just get to immerse yourself in this stuff that we love. And, you know, that's, you were doing that on the professional side, but every fan, think about people who fell in love to this music, um, their heart was broken to it, the greatest road trip of their life. This is the soundtrack. And when you walk in our museum, 
that's the powerful thing. All those emotions come out. You, you see other people that went through the same things, and you, you connect and talk about it. And that's the beauty of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It's the central place in the world to celebrate and honor this art form. You see, you got to have a separate wing there just for me about all the heartbroken songs. <laughs> <laughs> At, well, you know, it, it's, uh, again, that's the magic of it. The, the, the artifacts are amazing to actually have you know, exhibit the guitar that Jimi Hendrix played at Woodstock that he played the anthem on, you know, to have that on exhibit. What does that say about that important moment in American history? What's the artifact from the Stones? Uh, for the Stones, you know, what? one of the ones that really jumps out is that great um, cape that Mick wore. The white uh, cape? Uh, on the tours with the, with the, no, that was earlier. The later cape that's the British flag and the American oh, flag yeah. combined. Uh, that's pretty iconic. Uh, there are some things from the earlier days, from the exile days, and some travel cases. That Exile look, on Main Street? Yes. Yeah. And, and some, some the other pieces that are really neat are like the, the road cases in that exhibit look like they've been just uh, around the world and back. You have the tongue? <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a ton of stuff there. you got to come over and see it. And I'm assuming you have a lot of stuff in stores that you rotate. We do. At any given time, you know, we'll have roughly um, maybe 10% of what we own is on exhibit at any given time. All right, we, we can pretty well guess, even though I was wrong on Jethro Tull, but we can pretty well guess who's in. What's the biggest surprise to you of who's not in? Of who's not in, the biggest surprise. Um, you know what? If you asked me that five or six years ago, there's some artists I would have named, and they had never been on the ballot before. Suddenly they're on the ballot and they're in. So back then, Stevie Ray Vaughan, uh, right. he, he's now in. Uh, Rush, uh, great influential band. They weren't on, in. They're now in. Uh, Tom Waits, now in. You start going down that list in uh, Dr. John. I remember in L.A., I did the first story on Tom Waits. He drove, this is now in 73, he drove a 54 completely decrepit old black Cadillac. He was smoking about three and a half packs a day, and the entire car was cigarette ash. I mean, I mean, you, when you <laughs> sat down, it, it just, the, the ashes rose. And, and, and he, he didn't care. He was living in a car filled with cigarette ashes. <laughs> Seriously. Yes. It was, it was a nicotine mobile. Well, it, and you know what? What came out of that? Amazing stories, music, great yeah. stuff, and a talented artist. And uh, that's the, the museum. But think about the um, hundreds of thousands or millions of people that have made records. Um, there's only you know, a little over 300 of them are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And let's talk about those inductees. We just mentioned them briefly in the last segment. you got Bon Jovi. Who else? The Moody Blues. Right. The Cars. Dire Straits. The Cars. The Cars. Is Rick coming? Uh, we have every expectation. I believe they've... Uh, it's, it's funny, when you announce it, <clears throat> the, the message from all the inductees has been so positive and of exciting course. for all of them. Okay, The Cars. Nina Simone posthumously, of course. Yes, and, you know, and then Sister Rosetta Tharp, who isn't a household name, but she's the godmother of rock and roll. You talk about influencing, say, the Beatles or the Stones or the Beach Boys. She influenced Elvis Jerry Lee, Chuck Berry cites her as an influence, a electric guitar playing, gospel singing uh, preacher that could just bring it. Google her and watch a video. You'll get goosebumps. Is she still with us? Unfortunately, she's not. Okay. Another one who's no longer with us, Billy Preston. Uh, yes, and his name has come up frequently. Uh, he is not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Oh, he should be. Uh, amazing collaborator, amazing work, and a great, great uh, uh, song, songwriter. I mean, you talk to the Beatles, they'll tell you about Billy Preston. Yes. I mean, I used to see him on tour. I mean, uh, remember his song? Nothing from nothing leaves nothing. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, this guy was amazing. Uh, absolutely. You know, in the, in the break there, we heard some Tom Petty. Yeah. Uh, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and there's this uh, amazing moment where in our theater, there's a performance of him 
doing While My Guitar Gently Weeps for George Harrison, and Prince is playing the most amazing guitar solo you've ever seen. Uh, to see those two you guys, have that. we you have, have that. that, and you see it larger than life this year alone. That's really poignant. Especially this year. Yeah. Yeah. Prince is in, of course. Absolutely. I mean, on the first ballot, I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, you can't mess that one up. <laughs> if you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. My next guest was a uh, <laughs> criminal defense attorney for many years. Then he got smart. He decided to eat. Is that about right? <laughs> and right. <laughs> and right about it. Doug Tratner, cookbook author, dining editor for, for Cleveland Scene Magazine, and the guy responsible for the, the, the Moon publication, the Moon publishing book, Cleveland Travel Guide. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So uh, now you're just defending restaurants. Right. <laughs> well, the ones that deserve it anyway. <laughs> exactly. Me. So why did you make the change? Uh, my life fell apart. I was miserable. <laughs> you know, the, the, the normal things. Uh, I decided that, uh, you know, it wasn't working. I wasn't happy. I needed a, a serious career change. I, I, I moved. I, I returned. But you, are, to, but you are a Cleveland native. I'm born and raised, yeah. yeah. Moved down to uh, Columbus and stayed there for <clears throat> half my life. Are you an Ohio State guy? Sure am. Okay, I hate you. <laughs> because no, you beat Wisconsin. Right. You, you beat Wisconsin, and they still didn't give you respect and put you in the playoffs. It's true. It's I true. Know. It's ridiculous. I know. I know, but my team, Wisconsin's in a bowl game. We're playing, in fact, this weekend, uh, December 30th, we're playing Miami, and you guys are playing who? Go Badgers. Uh, we are playing, uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, one Badgers. of us is a football fan, yeah, and one of us is just eating, and that would be you. Exactly. Uh, I, we can talk about baseball all day long. I but, bet. Uh, I bet. Well, you came close with the Indians. Yeah. You did. Two years. All right, but now let's get back to your life was falling apart, no more criminal defense. I'm going to eat and write about it. Yeah, I got lucky. I, ca I came back to Cleveland in 2000, um, and things were really taken off. I mean, the city was uh, just starting to really just wake up from its slumber. I mean, there was development going on everywhere. There was a restaurant boom taking place. There was entertainment coming on board, new hotels, you name it. And I, you know, I got lucky. I joined, uh, you know, the Plain Dealer as a freelance writer back when they actually used freelance writers. Exactly. You know, they, uh, the, the, the staffers didn't want to go to that hot new club at midnight when you had to go to see what was going well, on. 17 years ago, I was still coming here once a month doing the morning exchange with the Fred and Connie. Love it. Right? And I had the same routine. I'd, I'd stay at this hotel, the old Ritz-Carlton, before they redid it, right? I'd go shopping next door at, at, at the Tower City, sure. right? Uh, and I'd either go to Shooters at night or in the flats, or I'd go to Sammy's, the famous sure. restaurant on the river. Sure. Or there was this, you'd probably remember the name of this place. It was in one of the tower buildings here on the square, uh, an old Italian mob place. You have to go downstairs to get in there. Oh, right. And right, with the old red banquette chairs. That was my routine because yeah. that's, that's what there was here. 
you know, it's funny because we're always kind of <clears throat> fighting against these old sto- you know, stereotypes and, and stories about Cleveland. Like, oh, the flats, you know. No, I mean, now, of course, the flats are all uh, back and, and very different. See, I was ahead of my way. time. I was right. ahead of my time. Right. Yeah. Uh, you, you saw it at its heyday, and now today it's, it's back in, in a very different way, thank God. But, yeah, you know, Cleveland, unfortunately, had some, you know, long-standing negative stereotypes that we are constantly trying to overcome. And for folks who come here, they see a, a city filled with amazing food, amazing bars, entertainment, uh, chefs, farmers markets, you name it. I mean, we're in the, the Cuyahoga Valley is just as fertile as the Hudson, you know, Hudson Valley. So we have great access to, to really good food. And sourcing. And sourcing. And people who know what to do with it when they get it. You know, I can name, you know, five restaurants that bring in whole animals. And, and butcher know, them there. Sure. It's a, you know, it's a, it's not just a trend. It's really a way of cooking here. I have to tell you, I mean, this is an eye opener for me. I was recently in Madison, Wisconsin, where I went to school, as you know, and their restaurant scene is booming. And I go to one restaurant with, with the chef there, and he says, come here, I want to show you something. They're in the back butchering a pig. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'd never seen that done. And now, I have an, even though I'm not a meat eater, I have a total appreciation of where everything comes from. Well, and it takes, you know, it's, it's a two-way uh, street, right? So, of course, we have, we're lucky to have chefs who know what to do with these animals. But you also have to have a dining community that's willing to, to trust that chef and order these foods. You know, we're not just talking about steaks and chops. You have Although to that's the, what Cleveland was. That's what Cleveland was. Well, to, I think yeah. I think everybody wants that. You know, yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's like the, the micro versus the macro beer. I think, you know, we you're in a bubble, uh, but it's still, uh, still a portion of people who are doing the really progressive things, both eating and cooking. All right, so let's talk about who's really doing what around here because, you know, you've got some serious superstar chefs now in Cleveland that weren't here in 2000. How many books do you have now, four? Yeah, we have our fourth one coming out. Well, not kind of, the guidebook is, is separate, but I've been doing uh, cookbooks with Mike Simon. Uh, our fourth one together will come out in spring. And he's a celebrated chef. He's a celebrated chef. He's, a, he's an incredible chef. He's in, an incredible ambassador for Cleveland and, and food. And it really was uh, Mike Simon who, who got us going. Certainly, we had great chefs. We had great restaurants. But 20 years ago, he opened up a little place called Lola Bistro in Tremont which, of course, you know how it works in neighborhoods that are coming around. Uh, it takes one person to kind of open up something, and then someone wants to be next to them and next to them. And uh, next thing you know, you have a, uh, an incredible dining destination over there in Tremont. And it's, it's called tri- Restaurant Row. Right, <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it really trickled out throughout the entire city. And we were lucky that, you know, he could have stayed in New York. He came back to Cleveland. He opened a restaurant, then another. And you know what happens. They train chefs. They go out. They open their own restaurants. And well, we're living in a world now where everybody's a superstar chef. Yeah, well, Everybody's they, a celebrity chef. They want to be, right? And that's yeah. the problem. You know, ask, a, ask an employer, ask a chef who's looking for somebody to be a line cook, and they all think they're, you know, they deserve to, to have their own TV shows the second they walk out of culinary school or, or six weeks on the job. It's, it's tough for these folks. Although I think you could say this about Cleveland, and tell me if I'm wrong, that if you're a chef here, you stay with the restaurant. Well, y- you do, only because, you know, uh, there's really nowhere to go, right? Until your boss, your chef boss, opens another place and moves you up. So folks like Zach Brule, who, of course, you know, is, is one of our mega chefs here. He has eight, nine restaurants. It's hard to keep track. He opens new restaurants so he can keep people, right? Until there's a, a, a way for them to move up, they'll either move up or move out. Right. All right, so let's talk about cutting-edge stuff here. I mean, there's been an explosion. There's just no doubt about it. There's so many different choices. Okay, I'm visiting Cleveland for the first time. I called Doug on the phone. Doug, where are you going to go for breakfast? Where are you going for lunch? And where are you going for dinner? 
and really surprised me. <laughs> well, you know, breakfast is easy. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a diner guy, and I'm me, lucky. Me too. Me too. There's a place in uh, uh, over by Shaker Square, over by where Doug Katz has the incredible restaurant Fire. Uh, right around the corner from there is a place called Big Al's Diner. I recommend it to everybody. It's one of the most diverse places. Is it open 24 see. hours a day? Unfortunately, it's not. Oh, right? come on! Breakfast you all day. A, you cannot yeah, be right. a diner right. without being open 24 hours. A day. Breakfast all day, but all day ends at 2:30. <laughs> you go there, you get biscuits and gravy, and, and you'll swear it's uh, as good as anywhere down south. But I love it. It's it's down home. It's casual and it's it's affordable. Okay, so there's number one. Uh-huh. Okay, let's move over to lunch. Well, I love. So I mean, I think a lot of your listeners would be surprised to know that Cleveland has an incredible Chinatown, an Asia town. They call it because it's not just okay. You Chinese got me. Food. I am now surprised. Thai, Vietnamese, Korean, uh, and we just have. Uh, I mean, I could rattle off ten great places, whether it's for pho or Korean bibimbap or you name it. But I love this new place just opened up. L J Shanghai. Real, authentic soup dumplings. They come out of the kitchen. I, I don't know if you ever and had hot, one. And they're hot. Oh, they're hot. And you got to be careful. Yeah, like, they're really hot. Folks who really don't. You'll, you'll burn your mouth. You'll burn your mouth. Yeah. And you'll spit it all over the table and it'll be a mess. <laughs> but go there and, uh, and, then, and then work your way to other places. Are you speaking from experience? I am. <laughs> Thank you. I just double check. Well, yeah. you know, folks like us, we do our research before we sit down to a place. I know what's on the menu already. I know how to eat it. I've looked it up. I've researched it. Okay, so what... Uh, these are not, this is not shumai. This is this is dumplings. Yeah, these are dumplings that look like any you know any other dumpling on a dim sum cart, right. uh, but they are filled with uh, a, a small ground meat uh, you know portion, but also or surrounded. Shrimp. They have shrimp too. Sure, and yeah. surrounded by hot liquid broth, and it's all contained in a very delicate wrapper. So the second you poke it or bite it, you're gonna get wear something you you, don't, you cannot afford to wear again. <laughs> right, right, exactly. You do the Detroit lean when you eat it. <laughs> The Detroit lean. How do you do that? Well, you know, you stand with your legs apart, and, and that way and you, you lean eat. over. So the coney, uh, the coney <laughs> sauce drips down on the ground between your. Uh, between In your all legs. the years of doing this show, I've never heard the word Detroit <laughs> lean. Well, there you go. I love it. All right, so that you go in there for dumplings. Yep. Okay, now let's swing over to dinner. Well, you know, we were talking about the farm-to-table movement. We were talking about whole animal butchery. But, you know, before you even go that, let's talk about farm-to-table because it's it's a buzzword. Everybody's using it now, right? You know, the farmer's market in Madison, Wisconsin is so cool because they have a rule. You cannot exhibit at that market unless you're the actual farmer. Right. You got to be able to, so that when anybody comes to that stand, you're actually talking to the guy who either raised the animals or grew, or, or, or made the cheese or grew the grew the you know, the vegetables, right? They call those a, a producers only market, and yeah. that's exactly what we have here. And we've had it for 20 years. The North Union Farmers Market has been around for 20 years, and they have locations throughout the throughout the city on various uh, days of the week. 100% producers only. So, if, Is there if, one day of the week that's the best day of the week to go? Saturday, Shaker Square. They shut down the whole thing, and, and you've got uh, you know, two, two streets filled with, uh, filled with folks. And it's a year-round market. Uh, they stay outside until December uh, and, and move inside uh, a smaller summer, uh, winter market, and then they come right back out in spring. The, only, the, only, the biggest problem I have with these farmers' markets, and nobody's figured this out yet. It's such an easy way to solve it. You go to the one in Madison, I'm, I'm going to say the words in Shaker Square for you as well, and you see somebody's done the most, the most amazing cheese or the most amazing, and you go, can you ship it to me? Oh, no, we don't do that. Well, do it. They're on a farm. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, FedEx goes to farms. Hey. I'm just saying, I can't bring it back, yeah. I, but I want it back. Yeah. You know, same thing with the cheese. It's, and, uh, and, and we also have one of the largest Amish communities in, in, I know. Know, in the United States, and a lot of those folks are obviously great farmers, and they're at our farmer's markets as well. Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. But I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more. It's the 
whenever I come to a city, and Cleveland is no exception, um, I try to do a couple of things. One is I limit myself to the number of museums I'm going to go to because otherwise my eyes glaze over. So I pick one museum, I give myself four hours, and then I can truly try to immerse myself and take stuff in and be a sponge. I can't do six museums in a day. I can't do two museums in a day. I try to do one. And if you're going to come to Cleveland, the one museum you want to do is the Cleveland Art Museum. And joining me now is the chief curator for that, Heather Lamont. Is it Lamontides? Yes. I got right. it right, didn't I? You did. Heather, thanks for joining us. Now, you've been with the museum for a while. I have. I've been with the museum for 15 years. That's correct. And what's amazing to me is, is and, and people... I mean, and please understand this from an outsider. When I mention art museums to most of my friends, Cleveland doesn't come up on the map, which is crazy. You know, they, they think of the, the coastal cities. You know, they think of the Met in New York, and they, and they think of stuff on the West Coast. But you are an amazing museum. We really are. We're one of the top museums in the United States as well as the world. We have an incredible collection where you're known as a collection of masterpieces. It's not huge. It's fewer than 50,000 objects, but of superlative quality. And yet you've got 18 curators, mm-hmm. right? Five different departments. That's right. I mean, you know, I, I look at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I know I can't do that museum in a year. I mean, <laughs> I can't, right? That's true. There's just so course. many different wings and, and things, and, and we're not even talking about what they have in storage, right? That's absolutely right. Same yes. thing with you. We do. We do. We certainly have many works in storage, but you're absolutely right. I think Cleveland is not, the Cleveland Museum of Art may not be top of mind for many people when they think of great museums in the country. You're right. They may think of the Met, the Getty, the National Gallery. However, we were voted um, the number two art museum um, in the country by a business insider this past year. So I, we are recognized by those in the know. Now, every museum, as you know, you know, has their, for lack of a better word, signature item. You know, you, you know if you're going to go to the Van Gogh Museum, you know, you're going to see something. If you see the Rembrandt Museum in Amsterdam, it's the Night Watch, right? Yes, exactly. What's the signature item at your museum. Do you have one? Oh, I think if I had to choose one object, which of course is very difficult, uh, I would probably point to our Caravaggio painting. It's certainly beloved. It's the only um, altarpiece by Caravaggio in the United States. It's the crucifixion of St. Andrew. You know, I'm going to ask the Caravaggio question. How much blood is in there? <laughs> um, and the reason why I ask that yeah. question is because if you go to the Co-Cathedral in Malta, you will see a Caravaggio which he painted only to avoid being executed. He was, mm-hmm. he was arrested for murder. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, but they were protecting him there, and the, the deal they cut with him is, hey, paint something. <sighs> and so he did, and sure enough, it's, it's, you have to go inside the cathedral, you have to go around the corner to see it, and there it is. And of course, Caravaggio, he was obsessed with blood. Yes, there's this one isn't um, necessarily flowing with blood, although it is <laughs> flowing with blood. I love it. It, it is um, full of humanity and certainly pathos. I would say. Yeah. Yes. And and uh, look, I'm not an art expert, but the thing that I find about Caravaggio is his use of shadow. Oh yes, right? indeed, absolutely. This is full of light and dark and drama and suspense and heavenly light and dark shadows, suggesting um, you know darker human qualities. So it's Saint Andrew on the cross, and he's been crucified um, for his Christian belief, and he wants to die on the cross in in emulation of Christ's death on the cross. Um, but because of the protester protest 
protest of the onlookers, um, a number of people are, are untying him from the cross, but he prays to God to, to die on the cross. And at the moment of the painting, the, um, the people who are about to untie him are paralyzed. So they're, so St. Andrew, as he dies, as he wishes to, as a martyr, um, is bathed in light while there's shadow throughout the rest of the painting. You know, when you think about what Caravaggio had to work with at that time, right? It's not as if he's in the room when they're actually crucifying, saying, hold it, yes. <laughs> can you hold it right there? Right, <laughs> right? of course. I mean, he had to do this from storytelling perspective. It had to do it from, from somebody else's memory and hand it down and hand it down and hand it down. And from from models, you know, study, looking, at, looking at individual people, looking at models in the studio, from memory, of course, imagination. There wouldn't have been, you know, a spotlight like we would have now or photography. A lot of it is coming, of course, from imagination. But you've had Gauguin here, you've had Monet here, right? And we're not talking about Murray Gauguin or Steve Monet. We're talking about the real thing. Was this your impressionist stuff uh, with, with Monet? I mean, I mean, how much? W- w- there are so many different Monets that are floating around. I mean, I go into a, a, a hotel in Venice called the Europa Regina, and you go up to room 306, and you open the windows there, and you see where Monet lived in that room and what he painted in that room, and you can actually see that. You can find that painting. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. What, do we, what did you have for Monet here? Oh, we have some wonderful Monet paintings. We have the water lily, one of the water lily canvases, a very, very large panoramic. Um, well, that, talk about a signature item. Absolutely. That's one of our top visitor favorites, um, painted toward the end of his life at Giverny. Uh, we also have a, a, my personal favorite Monet painting is um, Woman with a Red Kerchief, which is a painting of his first wife, Camille, um, glimpsed through a window. She's outside, the artist is inside, and a gray interior and he glimpses her through um, through a window and she's walking by in a snowy landscape with a red kerchief. Of course that begs the question, did he paint the second wife? You know, there aren't paintings with Alice actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. You see? He was always in love with the first wife then. <laughs> Perhaps. She was very dear to him and died quite young. Wow. Yes, he kept that painting himself throughout his entire life. What would you say is your most surprising exhibit that people are not expecting to see at the the museum? Um, I think an exhibition we're actually having in February will be a surprise to people. It's called Eyewitness Views, Making History in 18th Century Europe. And I think that will surprise people. We are borrowing um, a number of paintings. There are monumental canvases, very large um, views of Europe in the 18th century. And they depict actual events that happened at the time. So you might think of them as um, mega-sized postcards of contemporary events, incredibly detailed. I think people will be surprising at the level of detail. And of course, the thing, the key to any museum is having someone there or something there to explain it, to put it in context. And so these are the, 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 this artwork really is storytelling at its best. Yes, that's absolutely true. Narrative is hugely important to that show. We pay a great deal of attention to how we tell stories, how we deliver information to our visitors. Of course, we have didactics you can read. We have uh, an app that you can download onto Everybody your has an app. I know. Yeah. We've got an app, too. It's yeah. called Art Lens, and that adds a whole extra layer of information that you can explore. Um, so there are lots of different ways. There are many, many programs connected with our permanent collection and our special exhibitions. So there are lots of ways to to learn the stories and hear them. I mean, the key takeaway for me at any museum or 
in life in general is for somebody to tell me the story in a way that it relates to my life. Yes. In a way that I can say, oh, now I get it. Yes. Right? Exactly. And are you doing that with this exhibit? Well, absolutely. I think that there are parallels between what you'll see in the 18th century and our contemporary life. You know, different politicians coming into power. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. We won't even go there. We just did. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there are natural disasters. Um, there are celebratory things. There are weddings. But then there are also funerals. So um, there are many, many parallels with, with our lives today. The beautiful thing about, about art museums is as much as our lives have changed, it's amazing when you go and you look at these exhibits how much they've remained the same. Yes, yes. Right? It's, it's the old uh, Santayana quote that if you can't remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. True. Right. So true. Yes. So uh, the the timing of this exhibit is perfect for you. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. I Absolutely. mean, whether it's disasters, as you mentioned, fires, floods, celebrated lives, celebrated deaths, mm-hmm. and how it pivoted. You know how it changed history. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Spectacle will come into the play here a lot. In what is, way? In what way? Oh, uh, there are two paintings by one by um, one by Canaletto and one by another artist called Carl Varis of a state barge called the Bucantoro. It was a two-level golden barge only used um, to celebrate the ascension, and the Doge would emerge from um, this Bucantoro. So spectacle was very much a part of 18th century life as it is today in so many forms. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go My next guest is sort of a local Ohio boy who is now the chef de cuisine right here at the Ritz-Carlton. Josh Nam, how are you, sir? Good. Thank you for having me. You're a Cedar Point guy? Uh, Cedar Point, yep. Growing up uh, my whole life. You grew up at the amusement park, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Not at the amusement park, but pretty much during the summer, that's where you went. But, you know, here you are at the the Ritz, and I used to come to this hotel before they redid it, you know, during all the, uh, God, in in the 90s, and it opened up in 1990. You just reopened it end of October. What's changed in terms of the menu here? Because when I first came to Cleveland, and we talked about this before with uh, with Doug Trattner and a few other guys, you know, it was you know, you'd go to Sammy's if, if the river wasn't on fire, and you'd go to uh, out to the flats to Shooters, and that, that okay, I'm done. You know, <laughs> so you got to keep up now with a big food explosion in Cleveland because you you would admit it's a big food food explosion here. Yes, we have lots of restaurants and everything opening up all all the time around here. And yet, traditionally, hotel food's been an afterthought. You know, you have. Haven't gotten a big local crowd, but that's changed too. Oh yeah, so the new restaurant we've opened—it's uh, on the sixth floor, so we have lots of people coming in. It's a wide open space, uh, so there's nice bar and open area for everybody to come in and enjoy themselves. Now we got to talk about the menu, though. What's on the menu that's local? That's truly local, and you know, a lot of rivers in Ohio. So you—you <laughs> you, you got some, I'm sure you got trout. Yes, we have a nice trout on there, rainbow trout. Uh, but it's it, called Mad River. It's a Mad River trout, uh, and we also use rainbow trout to substitute. Right. And walleye? Walleye. We have a walleye sandwich that's deep fried. And I, knew, I, comes, see, I knew it was going to be deep fried because in Wisconsin, that's exactly how they do it, too. comes with a, um, a tartar sauce on top of it and in a pita bread. Yeah, exactly. And do you have a fish fry? <laughs> we don't have a, a... But you could. We, we could. We definitely yeah. could. Exactly. What's the, the signature Ohio dish that you've got on this menu? For breakfast, we have a Hungarian um, 
dish that has uh, it's called pokasha, which is a Hungarian biscuit. So it's our version of biscuits and gravy coming straight from a hearty meal. Would it's it be very oh, hearty? <laughs> you need a nap after that. Definitely. Okay. And lunch. And lunch, we have a um, crab salad uh, sandwich. Uh, it's like a BLT. So it's without the, without the B. Without the, well, B is the bacon. Oh, you do have a BLT. So it's yeah. crab, uh, marinated tomatoes, bacon, alfalfa sprouts on focaccia bread. Nice. It's our number one selling sandwich for lunch. Can you order it without the bacon? You definitely Thank can. Thank you, sir. Lots of people do. I might have to. And dinner? And dinner, the trout is one of our number one sellers. It's got a green bean almondine on it and a brown butter. And just served straight up like that. Okay, now i got to ask you, because you've been doing this for a while, and I do this with all the chefs, so don't take it personally. What's the one item on your menu that when you put it on, you thought, man, everybody's going to love this, and you couldn't sell one of them? It tanked. And then conversely, what's the one item that you put on and says, oh, I guess I have to put it on, but who's going to order this? And everybody wanted it. So right now we put on a Polish boy, which is usually a... Okay, stop right there. What is a Polish boy? Polish boy is a Cleveland signature Sounds like sandwich. a weapon. It's uh, like a bratwurst with coleslaw and then french fries on top of it. Okay, so it is a weapon. It pretty much. A direct admission to the hospital. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then it gets barbecue sauce on top to finish it. Um, Wear an old shirt. Exactly. It's a very messy sandwich, and it just doesn't seem to be selling like we thought it would be. Okay, so that's, that's one that may not stay on the menu. Definitely. So if you're coming to the Ritz-Carlton and you want to order the Polish boy, do it soon. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> okay, and the one item that you, you can't keep up because everybody wants it? It's a tomka soup, which is a coconut and shrimp soup. Uh, like, we, a sh like a shrimp bisque? or um, Lighter than a shrimp bisque. Okay. It's, it's very light. It's got mushrooms, tomatoes, peppers in it, uh, cilantro, and you can spice it up. We put bird chilies next to it, and it can get real spicy if you'd like it to. Is it Thai? Yes. It is Thai? Yes. It, well, if it's Thai, it can get real spicy. <laughs> I know it. Uh, but you have the ability here in your kitchens to do just about anything at this point. Yes. Now, you're not butchering your own animals. Uh, we break down our own primals, you, not you, full full animals. I love it. I love it. We break down yeah. our own primals. <laughs> this sounds like somebody's bad laboratory. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, so basically, when we get in strip loins or ribeyes, tenderloins, we break those down into your filet mignon. So your, basically, you make your own tomahawks here. Yes. <laughs> and how big is that tomahawk? Oh, it's huge. How big? Uh, 16 ounce. And, and you, you see, you should be like some of these restaurants. If you can finish it, it's free. <laughs> that, that truly is a weapon. It is. And you serve it on the bone? On the bone. Oh, my God. All right, so you're doing that. Yes. And your fish you're getting daily? Fish we get daily right from uh, a purveyor that is down the hill from us. So it's every, everything's fresh. And, and the veggies? Veggies. Uh, we also use a place called Chef's Garden, which is out in Milan. Not I, that far away? Uh, not very far at all, about 30 minutes away. And they do very nice uh, petite vegetables and fresh heirloom vegetables. So you're covered. We're covered. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.